0: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Pew Charitable Trusts, investing in ideas, returning results, pewtrusts.com. Additional support is provided by the John Templeton Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: This is Speaking of Faith, conversation about belief, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, we'll explore the complexities of the religious landscape of Iraq. In recent days, a devastating attack on a holy Shiite ritual delayed approval of Iraq's new interim constitution. This violence was intended perhaps to deepen the divide between Iraqi Sunnis and Shiites. But the process leading to the new constitution was marked by negotiation and compromise on every side. Here is the announcement of the Iraqi Governing Council.
2: We have adopted unanimously an instrument, the law for the administration of the Iraqi state during the transitional period, which includes, among other things, a comprehensive bill of rights, something which is really, uh, really unheard of, unprecedented in this part of the world.
1: The new Iraqi constitution prohibits legislation against Islam but it cites Islam as merely one source, not the primary source of Iraqi law. This hour I'll speak with an Iraqi American thinker and educator, Ahmed Al-Rahim, for background on the complicated, evolving role of Islam in Iraqi civil society. First, some history. 97% of Iraq's 25 million people are Muslim. Islam came to this region in the year 637, just five years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. Pivotal events in the early history of Islam happened here, including two civil wars between Muhammad's contemporaries over the question of who was to succeed him. This schism led to the division of Islam into two major traditions, Sunni and Shiite. Sunni and Shiite Muslims agree on basic tenets of their faith the belief in one God, the belief that the Quran is from God, and that Muhammad was the last prophet. The major difference between them is in the importance they place on spiritual leaders or imams. Sunni Muslims represent 90%, the vast majority of the world's Muslims. They believe in a direct approach to God and have little in the way of a clerical hierarchy. But there are a handful of countries, including Iran and Iraq, where Shiite Muslims are in the majority. Sixty percent of Iraqi Muslims are Shiite. Unlike Sunnis, Shiites invest their clerical hierarchy with great influence in secular and religious terms. Still, for centuries, Shiite clerics have traditionally avoided political power. This tradition was radically broken by the Iranian Shiite cleric Ayatollah Khomeini when he toppled the American-backed Shah of Iran with an Islamic revolution. Here's a BBC report of those events from 1979.
0: The streets of Tehran were alive to the sound of cheering crowds, and streams of cars with their headlights on and their horns flaring. It was, as far as the people were concerned, total victory. They danced and they cheered, and loudest of all, they called for the return of a man they see as taking the Shah's place the exiled religious
1: leader, Ayatollah Khomeini. Ayatollah Khomeini, like many Shiite clerics, was a jurist, an interpreter of the Quranic teachings or laws meant to govern the lives of Muslims. Interestingly, Khomeini developed his new idea of political rule by Islamic jurists while he was in exile in Iraq, in the holy Shiite city of Najaf. When American officials worry about the challenges ahead in post Saddam Iraq, the specter of Khomeini's Iran is never far from the discussion. My guest today, Ahmed Al Rahim, believes it is not likely that Iraq could become another fundamentalist republic along the lines of Ayatollah Khomeini's Iran. But he also says that in failing to understand the details of Islam in Iraq, Americans are missing opportunities to nurture a constructive role for religion in the coming era. Ahmed al-Rahim was born to Iraqi parents in Lebanon. He teaches Arabic language and literature at Harvard, but his knowledge of Iraqi society is personal as well as academic. He has served as an advisor to the U.S. forces in post-war Iraq and consulted on the reconstruction of the educational system. He offers practical insight into the history and texture of Islam in Iraqi society. Like every Muslim country, he points out, Islam in Iraq has a distinctive character. Divisions among Iraqi Muslims fall more along lines of class, geography, and ethnicity than theology. For example, the Kurdish insurgents who were Saddam Hussein's fiercest opponents are predominantly Sunni, like Saddam. Traditionally, Iraqis have been considered a relatively secular Muslim people. I asked Ahmed al-Rahim whether he thinks of Iraq as a very religious country.
2: I wouldn't say that it's deeply religious. I would say that people identify with Islam as a... A religious identity, and then that has to be broken down into the various uh, sects of Islam. So I th- I would say people broadly identify with Islam, but not in any particular religious sense uh, on the whole.
1: But could you take that apart a little bit? I mean, could you sort of explain what it, what does it mean to be, let's say, deeply Muslim in Iraq in particular, but not necessarily deeply religiously devout?
2: Well, I mean, recently there was a uh, article that talked about Kurds in Iraq who do not necessarily identify with Islam as a public political religion, but who look at their faith as a private one. And that was contrasted to how Shiites in the south and in Baghdad uh, are beginning to identify with their religion in a very public political way. And the example that was given was there were some protests in Basra about the lack of jobs and petroleum, gasoline. And uh, they were holding up signs that said, uh, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. And one wonders, what does that mean in the context of protests for gas (laughs) uh, to to hold up those kinds of signs? So I think there is a a divide within Iraq about the use of religion publicly, particularly in the north uh, where the Kurds have had relative autonomy since 1991, and where they have had access to the internet, to satellite television, they have begun identifying with religion as a private thing. It's not to say that there aren't Kurds who use religion for political purposes, Mm -hmm. but there is this divide.
1: As a private thing, meaning also a spiritual experience, or or is it still more a matter of cultural identity?
2: Uh, I would say that uh, it could be spiritual, it could be a, a matter of identity, it really depends on on the individual and the group that he's affiliated with i mean for example there is the naqshbandiya which is a sufi order in iraq which is is growing right. it's it's mainly sunni and
1: that's a mystical
2: um, yeah a mystical interpretation of islamic doctrine and is a kind of group uh, that brings together people on a communal level to participate in religious ceremonies it mm-hmm. might even have some impact politically there are also, for example, in Baghdad, I would say that the majority of the Shiite merchant class view their own religion as a private faith, of a spiritual one, a connection between them and God, uh, not necessarily a political one.
1: And when you say merchant class, you're describing what we would probably say middle class.
2: I would say middle to upper class uh, Iraqi Shiites who've really been left out of this dialogue about the new Iraq.
1: Okay. But who presumably will be very important in rebuilding.
2: Presumably, and and, and they are involved with it right now. The, The problem is this particular class has stayed out of politics, partly because politics for many Shiites has been stigmatized. And so they've focused on business and they've done very well. But what they don't understand is that their economic power in Iraq could be translated into political capital, and, and they haven't done that yet.
1: We talk a lot in the political context about religious dynamics, but a question I haven't heard anyone ask is, you know, what has been the, the spiritual effect of the Saddam years and the occupation? I mean, what has all that done to people's religious and spiritual sensibility, quite apart from the, the structures or the leaders? What's your feeling about that?
2: In, in an odd way, it's actually strengthened religious feeling and, and spirituality in Iraq because there was no longer a civil society. There were no longer organizations that they could voice their concerns through about the government.
1: You mean under Saddam?
2: Under Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. And so they turned to religion and religious identity. So in some sense it was strengthened. Saddam also wanted to strengthen it and use it for political reasons, and that's one of the reasons we see Allahu Akbar, God is great on the Iraqi flag. Uh, he wanted to use religion for political reasons. So in some ways it strengthened it, but in, in other ways people really don't understand what democracy and Islam mean, the, the, those two concepts together. And so You hear a lot of slogans being used here and there about Islam and democracy, Islam being the rule of of Iraq, and so on. But what that means is very difficult to know.
1: Because people have no direct experience of
2: that. They have no direct experience of it. And religion has become politicized. And so now, uh, after Saddam has has been captured and the fall of Baghdad, there's a real vacuum politically, and so people are attaching themselves to this interpretation of religion or that interpretation or to this sect or that sect, but the details of how that program will work is not really clear.
1: I mean, I could also imagine just from the kinds of stories we hear about not just what life was like under Saddam Hussein, but a lot of the suffering that is still going on in Iraq and, and that has occurred as a result of the fact that there's been a war there could be very demoralizing to people. but but are you saying that you've experienced a lot of people to be turning to religion because of that?
2: I think so. I think I think people are turning to religion as a escape. Certainly, they did that under Saddam. One thing that I noticed on going back to Iraq was uh, all the women that were uh, wearing the veil, the headscarf. Mm-hmm. and This wasn't the case uh, back in the 70s when I left, I don't remember that at all, but now it's predominant. What it means, uh, I think, is to be determined. Uh, I think as politics begins to develop and mature in Iraq, people will begin thinking differently about religion, what it means to be religious, do they want an Islamic state like Iran. All these questions, I think, will be debated and are actually being debated right now.
1: When you mention uh, women wearing the hijab, you see that as a matter of choice rather than that that's being required of them somehow culturally or religiously.
2: I think there's an expectation. Certainly uh, the time that we spent in Basra, some of the uh, women that we were working with who weren't wearing the hijab were made to feel very uncomfortable uh, when we went out to restaurants, when we went out into the streets, when we went to schools. And so many of them decided to put it on just so that they're not hassled. So, there is pressure, I think, uh, for women to wear it. And I think particularly, there are certain Iraqi groups that have come back from Iran or from Lebanon, and where they, they were involved with certain religious communities there, where that was the expectation, and in Iran, the law. Uh, and they've come back to Iraq now, putting pressure on Iraqis to do the same.
1: Ahmed Al-Rahim of Harvard. We've asked him to give us a picture of the Islamic landscape of Iraq. Most of the world's Muslims follow the Sunni tradition of Islam, but in Iraq, a majority are Shiite. The word Shia connotes a follower of Ali. He was the son-in-law and cousin of Muhammad, who Shiite Muslims deemed to be Muhammad's rightful heir. In fact, Ali was buried in the Iraqi city of Najaf, now a shrine city and a destination for Shiite pilgrims. As in every Muslim country, both Sunni and Shiite Islam have distinctive histories in Iraq, with many schools of thought and practice. Shiite clerics here have long followed a quietist tradition, favoring spiritual influence over political power. I asked Ahmed al-Rahim to help me understand what the Sunni-Shi'ite divide in Iraq means
2: in practical terms. The division is a historic political one, and it involves succession to uh, Muhammad. The Sunnis claim that uh, Muhammad left the question open and didn't designate anyone to succeed him and that succession would come about by a process of shura consultation of the elders, uh, the, the respected leaders of the Muslim community. And the Shiites, on the other hand, believe that Muhammad designated his son-in-law and cousin Ali ibn Abi Talib to succeed him. So it's, it's fundamentally a question of leadership. What it's come down to uh, historically is that the Sunnis have dominated most of Islamic history in the sense that the the Umayyad Caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate were generally of Sunni persuasion. The Shiites, on the other hand, have tended to stay out of politics except for some of the dynasties like the Fatimids and others where they dominated. But uh, by and large, it's been a political division.
1: But there are theological implications to that, right? That Sunnis believe more in a direct approach to God. They don't have such a, a strong clerical hierarchy that Shia Muslims do have a more exalted position in their imams. Isn't that right?
2: That's right. Uh, with the Shiites, you have the institution of, of marja'iya, which is uh, a institution of the supreme jurist uh, whom Shiites have to follow in questions of practical law. And there can be many of those uh, jurists, uh, I mean, as there are now in Iraq and in Iran and, and Lebanon. And and so they have to follow them in, in these practical questions. Also within Shiism, there's a division between the, the quietest tradition mm-hmm. and the more political one, the wilayat al-faqih, uh, rulership of the jurist, as we find in Iran.
1: Yeah, the quietest tradition it has been the more predominant tradition amongst Iraqi Shias.
2: It's been the predominant tradition in the Shi'i world for many years, up until Khomeini, who came up with this theory of uh, rulership of the jurists. And
1: he came up with that in Iraq, didn't he, and then went back to Iran.
2: That's right. It's interesting. He did come up with that in Iraq. And the irony of history is that now his grandson... Hussein Khomeini, who was here on a recent visit to the U.S., is coming up with his own ideas about a referendum on the Islamic Republic, and he's doing that in Iraq. <laughs> uh, and he is calling for a secular government in Iran. Uh, he is looking to establish a institution which does Islamic research on the relationship between secular and religious traditions. And so he's doing that in Iraq, and, and he's his grandson.
1: <laughs> and That's fascinating. Back to the Sunni-Shiite divide, it's not so neat just to say Saddam Hussein was associated with the Sunnis, and now the Shiites want to say. I mean, the Kurds are also Sunnis.
2: The majority of Kurds are Sunnis. There mm-hmm. is a group, the Felis, uh, who are are Shiite. There are also the Yazidis, which is a, an ancient religion that uh, combines elements of Zoroastrianism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Manichaeism together. They constitute about maybe 300,000 mm-hmm. members. So, yeah, the Kurds are very complex. But uh, generally speaking, the majority of them are are Sunnis.
1: So... If you tried to draw an analogy for an American who knows religious dynamics here, let's talk not about the political differences, but how Iraqi Shiites and Sunnis live together, work together, are neighbors. Is it like the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic maybe 50 years ago? What analogy would you think of
2: well, it really depends on the city. If you look at Baghdad, you'll see that Kurds, Sunni, Shiite, Yazidi, Arabs, you know, uh, Sunni, Shiite, and, uh, Christian, all, I mean, generally live together, they work together, they have a shared interest. You can break down that interest into classes even. You could say that there is a middle to upper class of all those different backgrounds and they tend to work together. And perhaps once there's a political system there in Iraq, they might even vote as, as together as a block. So there' are some shared class interests. generally speaking, that's that's how it is. I mean, I think Iraqis tend to be nostalgic about, for example, living under the monarchy. They would all claim that, you know, Christians, Jews, Muslims—they uh, all lived together, and there were really no differences. Yes,
1: that there's this history of pluralism.
2: There is this history of pluralism, and I think you know, sure. I think I think on the surface, certainly under the monarchy, that was something that was maintained. We had many uh, Jewish members of the parliament, uh, Shiite heads of the parliament. I mean, it was it was quite diverse. But what I would say is that underneath all that, there is this private language that each community has about the other. And that was never really addressed. And during political times, difficult crises and so on, this this private language about the other, which involves suspicion and so on, would uh, rear its ugly head. And I think there's always possibility for that until there is a real public debate in Iraq about, about that aspect of the relationship, about what each community believes, how to go about living together. Once that can be brought out into the public, then I think maybe some of those issues will be addressed. But as long as it remains a private language, then, then I think there's always potential for sectarian and religious strife.
1: Just to illustrate that, I mean, did you grow up with that kind of private language in your own family?
2: Sure, yeah. I
1: mean, tell me what, what form it would take.
2: Well, uh, it would take the form of, uh, for example, not allowing, I mean, in my case, uh, I come from a Shiite background, and certain family members would feel very uncomfortable with uh, other family members marrying Sunnis, for example. They would oppose it. They wanted the marriage to be within our own sect. Just general suspicion, you know, you can't really trust Sunnis that you can't trust, some of the other religious communities. At one point, certain religious members of my family would claim that, that Christians were impure, uh, these kinds of things, and ritually impure so that one cannot eat something that they cooked. You know there are these kinds of issues there which have a basis in the law, but you know it comes off in a very suspicious way of the other community.
1: Iraqi-American educator and advisor, Ahmed Al-Rahim. He's a specialist in Muslim intellectual history and teaches Arabic language and literature at Harvard. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith. Today, we're exploring the complex background of Islam in Iraq. Recent pronouncements by the leading cleric in Iraq, Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, appeared to contradict the non-political tradition of Shiite clerics that Ahmed al-Rahim has been describing. I asked al-Rahim whether Sistani is influenced by his Iranian counterparts, who imposed the rule of the jurists, that is, Islamic law, on the workings of government. Ayatollah Sistani has challenged the plans of the coalition provisional authority on several points. Sistani also criticized American security after the devastation of recent terrorist attacks on Shiite worshippers at Ashura, their holy ritual of martyrdom. Ahmed Al-Rahim says that ritual, in fact, commemorates the historic root of the quietist or non-political tradition of Iraq's Shiite
2: hierarchy. It goes back to what they see as the martyrdom of uh, Imam Hussein, the the third Shiite saint. After his revolt in Karbala in Iraq against Yazid ibn Muawiyah, after this revolt failed and he was massacred along with members of his family, for which there are many passion plays in the Shiite world, very much along the lines that, that you see about the passion plays about Jesus. There are a lot of parallels the Shiites felt that they were no longer interested in politics and that they would actually begin working on on jurisprudence, on the questions of theology, identity of the community. And that tradition continued up until the, the 12th Imam and then his occultation, his hiding. So this has continued all the way down to the, to the modern period, uh, with some exceptions in Iraq, in Iran, and the political shift occurred under Khomeini. Uh, So this quietest tradition has stayed out of politics. But it's interesting to note that Sistani, you know, for all his claims about wanting to stay out of politics, he's really at the heart and center of it.
1: Right. That's what I'm trying to understand. And,
2: And I think what that has to do with is... A sense of competition that the jurists have among them. You you have to understand that the juridical culture in Shiism is very, very competitive. Okay. Meaning? Meaning competitive about who has religious authority. Okay. And political as well. And I think the point that Sistani is trying to make to Khamenei, the head of Iran, is that, look, we have this quietest tradition. We don't need Khamenei's political thought And look how much political power we have at the same time. So he's trying to make a point, I think, uh, to to the Iranian clerics.
1: Harvard's Ahmed Al-Rahim. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, more of our conversation. He describes the restoration of civil society as the best hope for a constructive role for Islam in the new Iraq. When you visit our website at speakingoffaith.org, you'll find background and resources on Islam in Iraq and full audio of this interview. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us.
0: Audio cassettes and transcripts are available by calling 1-800-777-TEXT or by visiting our website at speakingoffaith.org. Speaking of Faith is produced by Minnesota Public Radio and distributed by PRI.
1: Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, conversation about belief, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, an extended conversation with Iraqi American educator and advisor Ahmed Al Rahim. After much debate, the Iraqi Governing Council recently approved an interim constitution. Ahmed Al Rahim is giving us details about the religious landscape and challenges of post war Iraq. We most often hear about Iraqi clerics because they are either pro- or anti-American. One such example is the fiercely belligerent Shiite Muqtada Sadr, the surviving son of a prominent ayatollah who was murdered by Saddam Hussein. In recent months, American attention has focused heavily on another cleric, Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani. He is currently the most important Shiite cleric in Iraq. He called for direct elections for Iraq's interim government, contradicting U.S. plans. One typical recent headline read, Iraq's path hinges on words of enigmatic cleric. I asked my guest Ahmed al-Rahim whether he believes that Americans should be looking at Ayatollah Sistani to understand the religious direction of the new Iraq.
2: Unfortunately, that's the only place that we can look right now because we, America, has has created this this situation in Iraq. The coalition provisional authority has painted themselves into a corner and have no other choice but to heed what Sistani says.
1: Well, tell me what that means. I mean, how could it have gone differently?
2: Well, it could have gone differently, I think, by looking at the diversity of the Shiite community in Iraq. I had mentioned the the merchant class, mm-hmm. the Shi merchant class. We have not done very much in supporting, for example, a Shiite chamber of commerce, you know, that could play a role politically, that could make pronouncements here and there which counterbalance those pronouncements from Najaf and Karbala where Sistani is. But what we have done is, let me step back here a minute and, yeah. and, and look at this. So U.S. policy towards Shiites has shifted in the last 10 years. Up until the, the first Gulf War, the Shiites of Iraq were perceived to be like the Shiites in Iran, that if given a chance, they would establish an Islamic state similar to Iran's. Then historians and others, policymakers, began to really think critically about the Shiites of Iraq and and research the topic. And they realized that, to the contrary, the Shiites of Iraq have this quietest tradition.
1: Yeah, it's a very different history, isn't it?
2: It's a very different history. It's one that's antithetical to Khomeini's line, political line. And so... This gave hope to certain policymakers in the U.S. that there could actually be regime change in Iraq and we wouldn't necessarily have an Islamic state if we worked with the Shiites there. And who were the Shiites under this new vision of Shiism in Iraq? Mainly Sistani, the Sadr family, the clerics. There was very little thought about the merchant class of Shiites, what role they could play. You know, I was going to ask you if
1: because under Saddam Hussein, Shiites were sort of excluded from power, essentially, that the reason these religious Shiite figures, quietest though they may be, are so visible now is that that was the only place that Shiite leaders could have authority. But I think you're saying that we could be looking in other places for that kind of leadership or to nurture that kind of voice that Shiite voice, that we, in a sense, have focused on Ayatollah Sistani.
2: That's right. I I think that we can look at other parts of the uh, Shiite community. I would say that the majority of of Shiites in Iraq, certainly many that I met with, teachers, uh, businessmen, uh, physicians, and so on, uh, generally have a very private sense about their faith. It's not a political, public sense that we associate with, for example, Muqtada al-Sadr. They, they see their faith as a private faith, one where they associate more with the class that they come from, where they're looking for stability, they're even looking to the West. So we haven't really focused on this group, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is that there wasn't any form of civil society under Saddam for these kinds of groups to work together, to come together. And so as a result of the vacuum, individuals like Sistani, Muqtada Sadr Mm -hmm. uh, naturally uh, come to the top.
1: So right now would be a time when those kinds of people and groups in Iraqi society might be forming and new leaders would be coming to the fore. But that's going to be a process that's happening, could happen now.
2: Well, it's a process that should have been initiated after the fall of Baghdad. Uh, We should have reached out much more to these communities. Mm -hmm. But it's a process that has to begin and is beginning at one level or another. And certainly once we have political institutions, once uh, we have a government, then the possibilities, I think, will come to fruition.
1: You know, you mentioned, let's say, the American government could have helped form a Shiite chamber of commerce. That would be such an alien idea in the American imagination because we have this virtue of separation and state always at the forefront. And I mean, that has worked in this country. I don't know. Do you think that when America goes to a place like Iraq, they may need to open that idea up a little bit?
2: I think so. I mean, if one even looks at the U.S., I mean, there are many aspects of civil society that have to do with an ethnic religious base. I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, Jewish groups here, if you look at Christian groups, uh, it, it's a sort of a broadly conceived religious identity, uh, not necessarily even religious. I mean, some in some sense, maybe even ethnic. Mm-hmm. And I think that in Iraq, It is different, and and it it is more complex in some ways. And so, yeah, we have to begin thinking differently about how to work with those communities.
1: Iraqi-American thinker and Harvard educator Ahmed Al-Rahim. I asked him to tell me about other religious leaders Iraqis are watching as they form their own sense of the role religion will play in their country's future.
2: Well, one example is uh, Sayyid Aya Jamaluddin. This was the cleric who had stood up in the first Nasiriyah conference. This was the the big tent conference, the first one. And he stood up and called for a separation of religion and state. Now, he's a Shiite cleric, uh, has a turban so on, has a religious following, spent many years in the United Arab Emirates and in the West and I spoke to him and 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 I think he really has a deep understanding of that religion, religious freedom can only be protected under a secular government, a government that separates religion and state. And he experienced that being in the United Arab Emirates, uh, being in the West, and so on. Uh, So he is critical of Sistani. He is certainly critical of Muqtad al-Sadr. He is afraid that... Sistani and Muqtada al-Sadr, if given enough power and authority, will form some sort of council of jurists that has the right to veto certain things, that, that has the right to define what how people believe. And so I think he's, he's an interesting voice, but unfortunately, he's a voice that hasn't been supported by the CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority.
1: Would it work for the CPA to support voices like that, or would, would the coalition Professional authority under Paul Bremer, I mean, would, would that seem to be meddling in Iraqi society?
2: Look, it's clear that the CPA, the CIA, the State Department, they all have their favorites and they all support them in one way or another. I'm not saying that they necessarily have to directly support him, but they have to give him the opportunity to voice those views. And that's that's not being done. And the reason is he doesn't fit the American conception of Shiism in Iraq. I mean, He just doesn't fit the Sistani Muqtada Sadr model.
1: Hmm. You've mentioned Muqtada Sadr a few times. Could you say who he is and why he's important in your mind?
2: Uh, Muqtada Sadr is the son of uh, uh, Sadiqa Sadr, a popular Shiite cleric who came up with a theory of working with the tribes in Iraq and and at some points was allowed to do that under Saddam ultimately he was a threat to Saddam and was killed in in 1999 i think in 1999 mm-hmm. and Muqtada al-Sadr is his son he's in his early 30s he is a firebrand he he is anti-American in his rhetoric he thinks he can assume the leadership of his father and and He's someone that uh, is a little bit unpredictable in his ways. One week, uh, he would talk about cooperating with the Americans. The next week, he would talk about jihad against the Americans. He's someone who uh, I think is very immature politically, and I think ultimately will be sidelined by the political process.
1: You've also spoken of, in some of what you've written and and said, you, you use the term separation of mosque and state. Is that a concept that is part of the public discussion in Iraq now?
2: It is a concept that is part of the discussion. Certainly, uh, it's been mentioned uh, at women's conferences in Iraq. I've mentioned uh, Ayad Jamada Dean uh, as a proponent of that view. Mm-hmm. It is a view that's that's being discussed, but unfortunately, it's one where if you promote that view, then you're looked at as anti-Islamic and uh, because somehow it's thought that, you know, you're saying something bad about the mosque, something bad about Islam. So the, the details of that kind of theory, of that kind of view, haven't really been addressed. It's really just beginning to happen now.
1: Where do you look for hope about how this all might go as well as it possibly could? What would happen, what would be nurtured maybe by the
2: American presence? That's a big question. Yeah, I know. Um, Well, I would say that uh, there are many things that have happened that uh, show signs of progress in Iraq, the education system, uh, building up certain forms of civil society and And uh, even just building up the infrastructure phone system, there are cell phones now, I mean there, there, there's there's progress being made, but unfortunately, it's being overshadowed by the suicide bombings and right. uh, yeah, so I would say that the hope for Iraq, uh, if I could put it in a nutshell, is civil society. If the right institutions are formed in Iraq that allow civil society to develop, then I think civil society will always be the counterbalance to political power.
1: And what do you think of specifically when you say civil society? Education?
2: I think of education. uh, I think of unions. I think of uh, religious institutions as well.
1: As part of the mix, as a sort of healthy part of the mix.
2: As part of the mix, uh, I think of the media, which has flourished after the fall of Baghdad. There are over 150 papers in Iraq right now. Uh, I think of the business community. But what, what needs to happen is these forms of civil society need to understand what they need to do to have influence over the political process. That's really what needs to be understood, the basic concepts, mechanisms of democracy and civil society. And that is slowly beginning to happen, but not a lot of work is being done in that direction.
1: Ahmed Al-Rahim. I'm Krista Tippett and this is Speaking of Faith. Today, a perspective on Islam in Iraq. In recent months, the role of religion in Iraqi civil society has been evolving. Women's groups objected after the governing council approved a proposal to give Islamic clerics a role in family law. Several Shiite clerics walked out after the council repealed that decision. But they came back, and after intense negotiation and compromise on every side, the council reached unanimous approval on each article of an interim constitution, which is being hailed as the most progressive such document in the Arab world. In one significant compromise, the constitution envisions that 25% of the seats in the National Assembly will be held by women. Ahmed Al-Rahim insists that strong civic institutions will provide the best context for a non-fundamentalist role for religion in Iraq. His specialty is education. I know that Iraq traditionally is a place where education was valued, and in fact, in all of the Arab world, Iraqi educators were imported. You've been working on the educational system Did that suffer under Saddam Hussein? Are the bones of that still there in Iraq to be built on now?
2: Certainly, it it suffered, particularly in the last five years uh, under Saddam. From February of 2002 to February of 2003, Saddam spent $6.3 million on the entire education system in Iraq. Mm. I mean, that's not enough to buy tissues for schools. And so schools were neglected. There was No hope for parents to send their children to school because the system favored the Ba'ath. The children of members of the Ba'ath party would go through school with with high grades. They would get into medical school. They didn't have to do any work. So there was no value in being at school. And so parents started taking their children out of school. What's happened now after the fall of Baghdad uh, and the rebuilding of the schools and, and hope the future is parents have begun to send their children back to school. We're working with um, an accelerated learning program there. And we can only have about 150 children in each school. And there are five programs uh, in Iraq. We have parents, uh, we have young adults coming to us and and begging us to come into these schools so that they could study and learn again. So I think there is hope for education in, in the new Iraq.
1: I think it's important that that value of education always coexisted in Iraq with an overwhelmingly Muslim society and culture. I mean, more on a theological and religious level, when you talk about rebuilding society, what do you find in Islam that can contribute, uh, and Islam in Iraq that will contribute or could contribute positively, constructively to that process?
2: Well, you know, I would say that there basic ethical uh, concepts uh, within Islam, uh, issues of justness, fairness, uh, equality. you know the, Islam, like any other religion, has these basic concepts and and these need to be emphasized in working uh, and living with other religious communities there. I would say that Islam as a private faith uh, needs to be emphasized uh, by Muslims there. I would say that uh, the religious institutions in Najaf and Kerbala need to have their own independence. There's a rich religious tradition of learning within, within those cities, within their libraries, and they need to have independence, and we need to get back to that quietest tradition I would say that there are forms of Sufism in Iraq uh, which have a rich history, which need to be developed. They could function as, as, a, as a form of a civil society as well. They have historically under Islam. I would say that uh, women's groups need to talk about religious freedom, need to uh, look at what in Islam can contribute to that. Um, so there there are many things, I think, within Islam, I mean, that, that can be used to this end.
1: Has it been your sense when you were in Iraq in this last period that Americans there are simply frightened by Islam or by religious expression that is Islamic so that maybe they don't go close enough and, and encourage that, which might be encouraged, the kinds of things you just described?
2: Uh, no, I, I I actually think that uh, it's been the, the contrary. I mean, I think that the Americans there certainly, a lot of the the Americans I worked with there, and and the soldiers that I met, they really connected with with Muslims there. I mean, and that represents some form of Islam. What I think they are afraid of are, are the more radical forms right. of it, and they have they have a right to be. I yeah. mean, Muslims are afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what's publicized. Right, that's what's publicized. But I think uh, the Americans, by and large, you know, understand that it's not necessarily a question of of Islam as such.
1: I mean, your field is is intellectual history. Is there some aspect of Iraqi intellectual religious history that you would especially want to be taught and think an awareness of would be constructive in this time?
2: I think one of the most remarkable things about medieval. Muslim intellectual history is the acceptance of ambiguity, the comfort with ambiguity. If you look at medieval texts, if you look at, for example, Quranic commentaries, they will give you 15, 30 different interpretations of one verse, sometimes even one word. Hmm. And in the end, they'll throw their hands up and say, and God knows best. And there wasn't this need to, to, to fix the text and say that it has to mean one thing or another, as has happened in the modern period. Uh, if you look at commentaries in the modern period, they're very short, very brief, and they they tell you this is what it means and that is it. And so I think there needs to be an appreciation of the medieval tradition and this this comfort with ambiguity. Because in some sense, I think in that ambiguity... We can have tolerance, we can have acceptance of different views, and that can even be extended to other religions. Uh, so i would I would say that that would be the one thing that would be most interesting to develop.
1: Ahmed Al-Rahim teaches Arabic language and literature at Harvard University. He's also a founding member of the American Islamic Congress, an organization dedicated to building inter-ethnic understanding in the wake of September 11th, and he served as an advisor to American forces in Iraq. In all the news this past year, it's been difficult to get the kind of basic insight into the human dimension of religion in Iraq that Ahmed Al-Rahim offers. His is a measured, relatively secular voice, as apparently is the historic religious profile of Iraqi society. And it is important to be reminded that while we are prone these days to speak of the Muslim world, each Muslim country has its own Islamic history and dynamics. Indeed, the Sunni-Shi'ite divide has vastly different texture and impact in every society. In the case of Iraq, where we are engaged in rebuilding that nation, we would do well to pay special attention to such nuance. But with each terrorist bombing, the stakes grow higher. The American ability to comprehend the particular religious dynamics of Iraqi society may be crucial. In closing, I'd like to read a section from a provocative essay entitled Mosque and State in Iraq, written by George Washington University professor Amitai Etzioni. He began to formulate these thoughts after attending a meeting in Iran two years ago in the wake of Ashura, the same Shiite ritual which was marked by violence in Iraq this past week. Etzioni's own presumptions about the inherent stridency of Islam were challenged at that meeting, and he began to re-examine an American approach to Islamic countries that would impose our own Western history and sensibilities. He writes, The United States, in Iraq and elsewhere, should cease promoting a secular civil society as the only alternative to a Taliban-like Shia theocracy. We cannot quell the religious yearnings of millions of Iraqis and many others elsewhere merely by fostering strong political and economic institutions and the sound values they embody. The most effective way to counter a theocracy is to include moderate liberal religious elements in the civil society we are helping to erect. The First Amendment's disestablishment clause is not a foreign policy tool, but a peculiarly American conception. Just because the American government is banned from promoting religion within the United States does not mean that the State Department and the Pentagon cannot promote religion overseas in societies that are undergoing profound societal changes. This last point is crucial. Overseas, we are participating as a key architect and builder of new institutions. We are in what social scientists call the design business. This is quite distinct from what we do at home, shoring up a solid social structure designed two centuries ago, careful not to rock the foundations on which it stands. In Iraq, we participate in the groundbreaking foundation-laying stage, one in which elements we can take for granted at home, such as a thriving religious life within civil society, must be provided. From an essay by Amitai Etzioni of George Washington University. We'd love to hear your thoughts and your questions on the role of Islam in rebuilding Iraq. There's a place for your reflections on our website at speakingoffaith.org. While you're there, you'll find links to background and other resources, including a full copy of Amitai Etzioni's essay. At speakingoffaith.org, you can also listen to this program again, as well as our previous programs. You can always write to us at mail at speakingoffaith.org, or you can call Minnesota Public Radio at 1-800-228-7123. This program was produced by Kate Moose and Brian Newhouse. Our technical producer is Mitch Hanley, web producer Trent Gillis, associate producer Judy Stone Nonnelly. Special thanks this time go to Iraqi human rights activist Zuhair Humadi. Marge Estrushko is our managing producer. The executive producer of Speaking of Faith is Bill Buzenberg, And I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us again next week.
0: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional support is provided by the Pew Charitable Trust sponsoring the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life to explore how religion shapes ideas and institutions, pewforum.org. The George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. And the John Templeton Foundation, exploring the creative interface between science and religion. Audio cassettes and transcripts are available by calling one 800 777 text or by visiting our website at speakingoffaith.org. This program is a production of Minnesota Public Radio and distributed by Public Radio International. P.R.I. Public Radio International.